With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Could it be you calling me down? That foolish heart turns out to be a beat. All that I am is all that you see. Welcome to another episode of the Sports Mecca Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Abramo. As always, I'm joined by my partner, Sam Hengeli. Today, we have the great opportunity to speak with Kurt Nelson. Kurt is the director of the Kansas City Royals Hall of Fame and is a walking encyclopedia when it comes to Royals history. With that said, Kurt, thanks for coming on the show today. We appreciate the time. Yes, thank you guys for having me. Of course. Both Sam and I have a lot to discuss with you. To start this show, you know, you are entering your in your 23rd season with the Royals, you can correct me if, if I'm a couple of years off, but really to start, tell us how you became the director of the Royals Hall of Fame and what does that job entail? Well, this, I guess it is 23 years. So I'm, I'm literally a gray beard. I grew up as a Royals fan. I did not grow up in Kansas City. I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. My parents were both from Kansas City. So I always spent a lot of time in Kansas City. And so it felt like home long before I ever lived here. But we were big Royals fans in, in my house, primarily my brothers and I. And so that was it was always sort of a, a dream would be to work for the Royals. I always say if you'd go back and talk to the 12-year-old me uh, and asked, asked him what he wanted to do for a living, he'd probably say, I'd like to work for the Kansas City Royals. And somehow... With a lot of help from a lot of other people, I was able to make that happen. I, I sort of I went through college with the idea of trying to get a job in sports. There was always trying to angle for the Royals at some point, but the idea is to to involve myself in sports. I knew I was never going to play sports for any you know at at any level other than uh, youth league, and I barely even did that. But, uh, but I always knew I wanted to be involved in, in athletics and sports. So that's what I went to school for with the idea of getting business degrees, figuring that the business side is where I would be able to, to get in, involved and make a career out of it if I was lucky enough to be able to do that. Uh, I went to undergrad at the University of Oklahoma and grad school at the University of Missouri. And uh, then I got sort of sidetracked for a couple of years where I was working and not in the sports business. And I thought to myself, well, this, this is okay, but I'd really rather be involved in sports. And uh, so I quit that job and moved to Kansas City with the idea that yeah, I, can, I hopefully can find a similar job like that and at least be in a place I wanna be. So I did that and I started applying for jobs all over the place. And one of the jobs that I applied for was with the Royals, and it was a seasonal position, what most people would call an internship, but it was a seasonal position at the time. And it was only supposed to run from March until the beginning of September. 
And the job usually entailed somebody that was either in the last couple of years of college or had just graduated from college. And I was 30 years old. So I was a little older than that. So I always call myself the 30 year old intern. I was able to get that job, which has the longest title of any job I've ever had here with the Royals, which it was group sales assistant and pregame coordinator, which means that I was basically uh, scheduling and putting into place first pitches and national anthem performances and all that sort of stuff. And then I was also working in the group sales department. Uh, it's hard to believe now, in 19, even in 1999, <laughs> everything was computerized, but it wasn't all computerized. They were still doing group sales. They were writing out on forms and things like that. So they would do a group sale and figure, fill out a form and, and I would get all those forms together and, uh, and tabulate them and then take them down to the ticket office, a function that's like in a stone age now. So I did that and uh, I got on with the Royals and uh, always hoping that maybe that, you know, getting your foot in the doors is one of the key things involved in that. And I got fortunate in the fact that there was, I was about three weeks in and we had been working 40 hour weeks because opening day was coming up and everything was trying to get aligned for the season. And really the, the job was only supposed to work like 30 hours a week. So it was about three weeks in and, and uh, the people I was reporting to came to me and said, you know, we really not, we got to pull back the hours. We got to pull back the hours back to the 30. And then I got uh, my break a little bit was there was an assistant that was a, the assistant to both the group sales director and the marketing director at the time who took another job uh, right about that same time. Within 24 hours of when they told me well, we we're going to have to cut back my hours. And uh, so I came in the next day and they said, you need to sit here now. And I sat there and from there on out, I was basically full-time. I didn't become full-time until technically at the end of the 99 season, but that's where my career in Royals marketing started. So I worked my way up from there, from what was a marketing coordinator at the time, then a marketing manager, then director of marketing. So the first 10 years or so. I was on the mark in the on the marketing team all the way up to uh, to director. And then when the renovations for Kauffman Stadium came about, which was uh, the 2006 vote and then into 2007, eight and nine, which was the renovation. Part of that project was always going to be that there was going to be a physical place for the Royals Hall of Fame. The Royals Hall of Fame had been around since 1986 when we inducted our first inductees. Amos Otis and Steve Busby, and it had always sort of had a place on the concourse, an exterior sort of place on the concourse, but it never really had a physical place where we could tell the story and have more artifacts and things like that. So when we got into that particular process, that's when ownership came to me and asked me, hey, we think you would be the perfect person for this particular role because in the, in the years I was in the marketing department, I got known to be sort of the guy that sort of knew way too much about Royals history. I would know more absurd things sometimes than I would know things that, you know, at the real granular stuff. So people would go, I don't know, go ask Kurt, maybe he'll know. So that's sort of how that came about. So I kind of got that reputation as 
knowing and loving this part of the franchise's history part. And they asked me to sort of take that on. And of course that happened in 2008. I always forget when it exactly was. It was either 2007 or to the beginning of 2008. And that's what I've been doing ever since. So that's sort of how I came about. I, the director of the Royals Hall of Fame was a role that didn't exist before me. Hopefully it will after me. Hopefully they'll see value in what I've been able to do with the people that I've worked with, that, that it'll be an ongoing role with the Royals, which I think it will be. I'm not giving it up anytime soon. So, cause it is sort of the, the job of a lifetime for a person like me that, that loves the Royals. And uh, my, my entire life, I can sort of mark by, by uh, what's going on with the Royals. So it's a pretty special thing to be able to be the sort of caretaker and steward of Royals history. So that's a not too brief version of how I got here. Yeah, um, you, you mentioned you had some very interesting, I would say, ability to just memorize and remember all these different stats and figures of Royals history. Give us a couple of weird, quirky stats about the Royals, like just one or two that you think that nobody would know but you. Well, one of my favorite ones, and actually I did not know this for years until I started looking up and I, and I started tracking it down. And I'm like, I think this might be the case. So the very first game in Royals history, April 8, 1969, there's a lot of interesting things that happened with that particular game in the fact that it was the first game in Royals history. If you're no baseball history of a certain time period, you know, Billy Martin became a really prominent figure in, in baseball as a manager. He had been a decent player before, but he sort of became a real big story for about two decades as a major league manager, especially with the Yankees, who he managed, what, four <laughs> times, I think. And, and was going to be a fifth had he not passed away in a car accident. And, uh, but it also managed the, the Rangers and the Tigers and, uh, and the A's. Great success with the A's on a very short period of time. But his very first managerial gig was with the Minnesota Twins. And his first game that he ever managed in the big leagues was April 8th, 1969, when the Twins would play the Royals at Municipal Stadium. So I always think that that's sort of, and, and he would have some confrontations with the Royals with some of his Yankees teams and even his A's teams later on. So I always thought that that was sort of an, an interesting byline of that sort of side story of the Royals opening day. There's so much that goes into that first Royals game that, that I find fascinating. You know, Lou Pinella probably will end up in the Hall of Fame as a manager and had a very good playing career course tied with the Yankees a lot because he was general manager for them uh, briefly and, and manager for them later on there's a lot of people who don't really remember his time with the Royals which he it wasn't his major league debut he had actually played in the major leagues for two different teams before that he played for the the Baltimore Orioles ever so briefly and the Cleveland Indians ever so briefly he wasn't even a member of the Royals a week before opening day in 69. He was actually a member of the Seattle Pilots, our sibling new expansion team in the American League, a team that would only play in Seattle for one year and then move to Milwaukee and become the Brewers and are no longer even in the American League. But he was actually part of their club until a week before opening day when we made a trade with them and he came to Kansas City 
and he was he was started in center field for us on that first game sort of moved around but played center field on that game and he was the first hitter in royals history because of his fiery personality that he would become known for primarily as a manager but even as a player he had that same fiery personality I always like to think, so the very first batter in Royals history was Lou Pinella. And on the very first pitch ever thrown to a Royals player was swung at, which would make sense in a lot of Royals history. And it was hit right down the third base line and was a double. So the very first pitch any Royals player ever saw was Lou Pinella and he got the first hit. And then Jerry Adair falls with a single. So Pinella goes from being with the Seattle Pilots a week before opening day to the first player to batten for the Royals, the first player to get a hit, and the first player to score a run for the Royals, and would go on and be the 1969 American League Rookie of the Year. So really the first Royal to win one of the, uh, you know, the top Baseball America writers awards in that first year. So that's that to me, that's kind of a fun story. The other one kind of comes with the idea of that, that game would go into extra innings. It was Joe Keogh who would get a, a base hit to win the game for us in extra innings. Now, we hadn't had baseball in Kansas City for a full year. 68 was the season without, no, without baseball. It was the first time since 1883 in which Kansas City did not have at least one home team. And so we played extra innings, naturally. And actually played extra innings the next day against the Twins and won again. So we played two extra inning games because they tried to pack in three games into two in that first uh, rundown. And Keogh is interesting because he's the only he's the only player to ever play for the 1968 Oakland A's their first year after leaving here, which he made his major league debut for them and play for the 1969 Kansas City Royals in which he would come back to Kansas City because he was a farmhand of the A's in 67 when their last year here. So there's sort of another interesting connection. And then the one that's probably the most interesting is if you go to 1985 and game six of the World Series, you always have the big, the big missed call at first base, which sort of gave us new life to be able to to, to rally. I always bristle at that because that call, had that call been made correctly, we don't know what would have happened. There's a lot of people that think if Don Dinkinger makes the right call, the Cardinals win the World Series, and that's not true. We don't know that. That would have been out number one. It was the first batter of the inning, and there was only one out when the winning run scored in that inning. So there, there was, the, the Cardinals were never at a point where they were, where they would have ended the World Series on our particular play, but be that as it may, we can get into the game six of the world series and that sort of thing later on. But if you want to, cause chapter and verse, I can go. But so Dinkinger gets tied a lot to Royals history because of that missed call. And as it turns out, he began his major league umpiring career on April 8th, 1969 at municipal stadium at third base. So he was, he was actually his very first game as a major league umpire was that very first game in Royals history, which I don't think most people would know. And it's sort of an interesting, the, the baseball does these magical things where you can have all these interconnections to it. And that, that story of Don Dinkinger's major league career as an umpire, a very respected umpire. He just made a bad call on that particular play. And so there is that sort of connection back to the, uh, 
to the very start in Royals history as well. You know, I mentioned in the intro that you really are the encyclopedia of the Royals. You know, how, how much time have you spent over the years, you know, researching all these different stats and tidbits of the Royals? Like how long, I guess, has it taken you to just master the history of the franchise? I'm curious about that. It's always an ongoing project, right? So there's a lot of it that I remember, or sometimes I'll sit around and I'll go, you know, I, I think this happened and I'll want to look back and say to uh, make sure that I'm right or, or make sure that that spark of knowledge that I might have had or spark of a memory that, you know, I think something like that happened before and it was this particular person or whatever and try to go back and find contemporaneous news stories to zone in on if the date was what I think it was or and find these these little either things that come across. So sometimes something will happen and I'll go, you know, I think something like that happened before or whether it'll just be something that I'll remember from seeing somebody or, or hearing some other tangential story that doesn't even relate to the Royals. And it's like, I think something like that happened to us before too. And be able to go back and find out some more details about those particular stories. I love that particular aspect of it. An example on that front would be the pine tar game. Now you guys are too young to remember the pine. You weren't even born, but you know about it because it's this, you know, one of the great capers in baseball history. What's interesting to me about that is the Yankees and the Royals both came at that particular rule, which it wasn't really a rule, but we can get into that. But they came at it from different directions because they had both had contact with it previously years before six seven eight years before the idea that pine tar couldn't be any further up than a certain amount on the bat people insinuated it was a rule it really wasn't a rule it was an american league guideline and the american league guideline said this if the pine tar is above a certain spot then the umpire could declare it an, an ineligible bat not an illegal bat an ineligible bat a uh, bat, meaning the umpire could say, that's an ineligible bat. You either have to clean that off or you have to use another bat. But anything that you have done with it before I say this would still be in standing. That's what the real guideline was. People would put in there the idea that it was an illegal bat. And if you go to the rule book and if somebody uses an illegal bat, then what they've done with the bat is null and void. So the Yankees and Royals come at this from different perspectives because there was a time where the Yankees had a run in. Thurman Munson had had a base hit that drove in a run early in a game against the Twins years earlier. I want to say 1976. After the play, Munson had been called out and they took the run off the board. And then the game continued. They ended up losing the game. And uh, so the Yankees remembered that. It's like Thurman was called out on a bat because of too much pine tar on the bat. The Royals have had a run in with the Angels in 1975, in which the Angels were complaining that John Mayberry had pine tar too far up his bat. And the umpire said, no, I'm not doing anything about that and explained sort of the guideline. It's like, no, I'm not calling him out. So the Royals sort of knew that part of it. So they had had this come up and knew that they had got the ruling in the fact that it, what happened had happened and it wasn't an illegal bat. So they both go in with this, with these differing views. 
The problem that the Yankees had was, is the Yankees didn't protest. That's a different thing. Had the Yankees protested back in the in the day when Thurman Munson did that, they might have got the same ruling, but they did not protest it. And it happened in the game, so nothing became of it. The other interesting thing that I think about the Pine Tar game is the Pine Tar game probably wouldn't be the Pine Tar game, except for the fact of it, the circumstances of when it happened. So Thurman Munson's was early in the game. I believe it was in the first inning. Well, it's hard to go back and reconstruct the game and change something that happened in the first inning of a game that you went out, that you went on to complete, right? So how do you put a run back on the board when you said it didn't happen? And what about all the game that happened after that? Or do we erase all of that and go back and restart where we made a mistake? Whereas the Pine Tar game with George was two outs in the top of the ninth and the Royals were behind and his home run put them ahead. So if the umpires called George out, what happens? The runs come off the board. He's the third out. The game is over, right? So I always say the circumstances of that made it where the, the call could be made, where Lee McPhail, the president of the American League at that time, could make a clear call because he didn't have to change anything, right? All he had to say was the game will resume right at that point because nothing had happened after it. And I think that was always key. It's like if George's home run would have been in the third inning of that game, I think the ruling would have came down, but he probably would have said the ruling was incorrect, but we can't go back. It is what it is. There's mm -hmm. interesting things about that. So, but, but that goes into having to know what the Royals history is with that pine, with pine tar, what the Yankees history is with that pine tar and leading up to that moment in which they would collide. And uh, I don't think most people know the backstory of the two of the two incidents beforehand and how the two teams viewed themselves as correct because they had both been through it before and they had both gotten the Yankees said our guy was called out they'll call his guy out that was their perspective because that's what had happened to them and the Royals perspective was another team tried to get our guy called out and the umpire said that wasn't that wasn't a rule and uh, so they came at it from different ways. And we ended up winning because we were right. And the Yankees were wrong. And they probably would have known that they were wrong had they protested, but they did not. Man, that's a lot of, <laughs> lot of research, a lot of details, Kurt. W one question to kind of backtracking out to, to the Hall of Fame itself. For, for people that, you know, they, for people that know that, you know, you're the director of the Hall of Fame and know that you're a historian, talk to us about the day-to-day aspects of what you're doing you know in the off season and then you know during the season what are you doing at the hall of fame so the off season is always a little bit interesting because it it turns in more to a nine to five job and there's some other things that i do inside the organization that are that are sort of organization based and not necessarily royals hall of fame based so there's some of that that's going on but there's also putting together exhibits exhibit ideas and you know, getting ready for the season this year, we've we've added some more cases that we're going to fill up with some artifacts because we over the years we've been able to accumulate some more artifacts, more recent artifacts. We haven't really been able to go back and get any that weren't part of the. I would love to be able to go back and and accumulate and acquire some artifacts from earlier Royals history, but a lot of our artifacts deal from you know in the the 2010s and on. So 
sort of working through what we're going to be able to I used to say all the good stuff that we had from an artifact perspective was on display. That's not necessarily true anymore because we have a lot of things that and we just don't have room to display them properly. Uh, we always have a policy if a if a player wins one of the the key awards the the big and we sort of demarcate them as gold gloves silver sluggers obviously an MVP which we haven't unfortunately we haven't won one of those in a while uh, Cy Young award that we purchased duplicates of those. So over the last decade or so, we've accumulated a lot of gold gloves and some silver sluggers and uh, things like that, that that aren't on display because it's hard to display that many of them. So hopefully we'll get some of that up. And uh, we're trying to branch outside the, the physical space of the building. Unfortunately, it probably won't be public at the moment because uh, because of the weather elements, it's hard to put artifacts on the concourse and things like that. In some of our admin buildings and some of the business office and that sort of thing, uh, baseball ops office to sort of branch out and put some artifacts and things like that uh, around the building a little bit more so people you know, can have more of an appreciation that they're not just working in an office. This is working for a for a major league baseball team where that that has some history. So that's one thing I've been working on. And then we've, we haven't been able to use the, if you guys have been in the hall of fame, you know, we have a theater, which I think is one of the cool parts of the experience because the theater is built to, to feel like you're sort of in the Royals uh, dugout looking out onto the field. And it's got a broad screen that shows a, a video. And we haven't been able to use that for the last couple of years because it's a really confined space. So even when we reopened the Hall of Fame last year during the season, we didn't open the theater because it's it's really was a little bit too confined of a space to put 30 people into for periods of, of time. But we're hoping to be able to, to use it again this year. And we've been working on the idea of putting together some new video pieces to be able to, to show up there. So that's a project that, that I've sort of been working on. I have to rely a lot on the time and energy and skills and talents of other people in the organization, our video people to, to be able to help me pull that off. So that's, that's another project we're working on. We, if you've been in the Royals Hall of Fame, you also know probably I've seen, we usually each year have a, uh, a display that we work on with the National Baseball Hall of Fame in which they will loan artifacts to us. And it's usually on some particular storyline. Last year's was uh, Hail to the Game, Baseball and the American Presidency. So it was how presidents had interacted with, and, and the game of baseball and presidents have interacted with each other over the years. And uh, that was originally designed to be in 2020 on uh, presidential election year. But of course, nobody came, was able to come to the ballpark in 2020. So we kept it over and just did it sort of in a presidential inauguration year in 2021. So we just took that one down and we'll be, we're working on the one for uh, 2022. 2022 is the 50th anniversary of our last games played at Municipal Stadium in uh, at 22nd and Brooklyn here in Kansas City, our first home and uh, the home for Kansas City baseball for a half a century. You know, it opened in 23 and basically went through 72. And, uh, and it had so much history with it, with the fact of the, you know, the, the Blues played there and uh, the A's and the Royals. And you also had the Monarchs. It was their home ballpark, their primary home ballpark. 
they had played at Association Park a little bit before that as well, but because they came about in 1920, so they played at Association Park throughout most of their history. Their home ballpark was Municipal Stadium, and then Municipal Stadium has other sort of fun things that are tied to it that are big, and, and it's the first home of the Chiefs. The longest game in NFL history was played there, still the longest game in NFL history. The last game the Chiefs ever played there, Christmas Day, 1971 cool for me as sort of a history cultural history sort of person it's the the Beatles made their one and only appearance together in Kansas City and they did that on their first tour of America which wasn't originally supposed to be on their tour for America but Charlie Finley was able to pull that off and that happened at uh, at Municipal Stadium Lou Gehrig played his final game of baseball at Municipal Stadium most people remember he uh, quit playing at the the end of April, beginning of May in 1939, the first game he missed was in Detroit. So the last game he had played was, I think it was in New York against the, against the Senators. And a lot of people say this last game he ever played. It was the last major league game he ever played, but he played in one more game and it came that June. He was still traveling with the Yankees. He was the team captain. And he was still traveling with the Yankees in hopes that somebody they would he would get healthier and would get stronger and he would get back in the lineup. So he was still traveling with them. And they were finishing a long road trip in which they ended in St. Louis playing the Browns, now the Baltimore Orioles, but American League team. And when that ended, they got on the train. Instead of going back home, they came to Kansas City for a day to play the Kansas City Blues, which was their top minor league, one of their top, Newark and Kansas City were their two top minor league affiliates. He came to that game and the ballpark at the time, it wasn't Municipal Stadium at the, it wasn't called Municipal Stadium at the time and it was in its minor league configuration. It was called Rupert Stadium at the time because the the ballpark was actually owned by the Yankees and the owner of the Yankees was Colonel Rupert. So during that short period of time, that ballpark was called Rupert Stadium. I think it only held like 7,000 people and there's Kansas City Star says that there were like 12, 13,000 people there. And there, there, there's only one picture of the event that I've ever seen. And you don't really see the field, but you can see the concourse and there's people sitting on top of the concession stands. So it was packed. And Gehrig thought a lot of those people are probably hoping that they could see me play, which they, he was probably right. And so he decided, but by God, he was going to play in that game. So he played the first three innings of that game. At first base, he had one at bat and he grounded out. And that was the last time that Lou Gehrig ever played baseball was at Municipal Stadium or Rupert Stadium at 22nd and Brooklyn here in Kansas City, playing for the New York Yankees against the Kansas City Blues, in which both teams had a center fielder named DiMaggio. The younger DiMaggio was playing for the Yankees. The older DiMaggio was playing for the Blues. There was that sort of angle as well. So it was a, it was a big day celebrating the 50 years of us and and the idea is it's ballparks that don't exist anymore right so they're ballparks of the mind we can only remember them now because they're not around but they're memorable through all these stories of like i was just telling them about municipal stadium about why we should remember municipal stadium what we would know as municipal stadium because of all these things that happen there well the idea is there's all uh, these other ballparks that that sort of have those stories too. So it's it's sort of the exhibit is built around the idea of ballparks that we can only envision now through pictures and story. 
because they're gone, but they're remembered so well because of all the things that happened. That's another project we've been working on because we're about ready to uh, send the items that we had back and then start getting that ready to that display ready so we can accept the items that will be coming here in uh, the beginning of March, probably. So, uh, Kurt, thank you for coming on today. Um, one moment I remember it was uh, August 14, 2002, uh, Royals versus Yankees. Mike Sweeney's on third, Andy Pettit's pitching. And all of a sudden, Mike Sweeney heads for home and steals home, makes it safely. Uh, can you talk about that game and uh, and uh, what happened after that as well? That game was early, very early on in the managerial career of Tony Pena with the Royals. So Tony and, and Mike didn't really know each other all that well. So Mike's on third base and he says he's looking in and he's talking to the third base coach and he goes, you know, I think I might be able to, I think I might be able to steal home. And the third base coach is like, I don't know. I don't think you should do it. It goes, you, you have to give skip would have to give you the, the, the line to go on that. So Sweeney looks into the Royals dugout and he, he tells the story. I believe I have most of these details, right? So he says he's trying to get Tony's attention in the dugout, which is in direct line of sight. They're not really, you know, the Royals dugouts on the first base side. So he says he's looking into Tony Pena and he gives him a signal like, you know, one of these, like, yeah, can I go, can I go? And Tony Pena said, did something like this. And Mike took that as sure, go ahead. And so he actually steals home. And he, Mike tells the story. It's like he gets in the dugout and, and Pena comes up to him and says, what are you doing? He goes, well, I, I did this and you did this. I thought that meant go. And he's like, I was thinking, it was like, I was like, no, I was saying think. So it wasn't supposed to happen. And he did steal home and he was <laughs> safe. Mike Sweeney of all people stealing home. Unfortunately, we ended up losing the game, which was, I always remember that part. It's like, it's a better, to me, it's always a better story if we ended up winning the game. We ended up losing that game. But it's one of Mike's favorite stories to tell. He, he enjoys that story much more than the, the other story that people like to talk about was, was his confrontation with Jeff Weaver, which he doesn't like to tell as much. And I understand why, because that wasn't his favorite moment of his career, because he doesn't like to, to think that he would be out of control and angry like that. But, but he, was, he was sort of provoked. And uh, I don't think he likes to think that he could be provoked, but he was provoked in that particular particular situation and it's not his proudest moment the only time he ever got thrown out of a game too yeah definitely Mike Sweeney he was definitely a really classy guy really nice calm and loving and caring guy I, yeah I, I remember like I remember watching the, his it was like a champions of faith video and he discussed that whole thing because he was like a youth minister at his church and this and the, and like one of the girls comes up to him and he's like um it's like why did you do that Mike and and she was like, I see you on TV and you're punching people. And then like, she asked like, will you forgive me? <laughs> it's not his favorite moment. So yeah, I, like we, we talk about it every now and then, but he, it's not his, it's yeah. not his favorite moment. The uh, 2000s for the Royals was not a very uh, great time to be a fan, but 2003 was a really fun year, entertaining year. Uh, what was your favorite game and memory of the 2003 season? Well, the 2003 season, 
it was it's really an interesting year. I mean, it's as it turns out, it's the one over 500 years in the what I call the wilderness years, where it started out so well because we had the winning streak to start the season. And I remember a uh, a Friday night, I'm almost positive it was against the Tigers, and Ken Harvey hit a walk-off home run. It was a Friday night and we were having fireworks. The Royals were off to this great start. And Ken Harvey hits this walk-off home run. And the place was electric because it was packed. The place was full. And until, you know, the 14 and 15 years, uh, sort of the wild card game of the time that I've been working here since 99, that particular Friday night and that walk-off home run was as loud as this ballpark had ever been. The following year in 2004, we had a tremendous opening day in which we had this huge comeback against the White Sox and Carlos Beltran would hit a walk-off home run in that particular case after Mindy Lopez had hit a tying home run earlier. It was really loud then, but we were so far behind. It was such a big comeback in the ninth inning. We were so far behind that we'd lost some of the people. So the ballpark wasn't still completely full on that opening day when we made that big comeback. Whereas on that Friday night with Ken Harvey, the year before we had fireworks after the game. So nobody had left and it was, it was really loud. So that's, I remember that. I remember the, the great start. I always remember that, you know, we finished four games over 500 and, and almost all of that you could be traced back to April, right? If you take in all the months outside of April, we were under 500 the rest of the year. Although we did have a really hot April and then we had a dry spell and then the sort of the end of June, beginning of July, we had another really hot spell in which the other teams in our division were not doing very well. And we actually went into the all-star break with a seven and a half game lead in first place. It's always frustrating to know that you were seven and a half games into first place and we were never really in the pennant race because by beginning to middle of September, we were sort of we weren't mathematically out of it, but, you know, we were sort of out of it. Although that we were over 500 that year and it got off to such a great start and everything, we never really experienced the thrill of we're going to be in the playoffs or there's a chance we're going to be in the playoffs. There was never that real moment. So I remember that, you know, it being fun. It didn't seem sustainable, though, right? So it's yeah. a little bit different. It felt like we were literally catching lightning in a bottle it didn't feel like it was going to repeat itself. And of course it didn't. So it was a little bit different feeling, but it was a great relief inside because it was, it's much more fun. I'm, I mean, for, for everybody, for the fans, the players, the people, the staff and everything, it's, it's always much more fun to win. And uh, that was a year where there was a significant portion of the year where, where we were sort of, sort of in it. Unfortunately, it wasn't at the end. It's like the, you want to, you want to feel that way at the end and not at the beginning and the middle. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so um, let's uh, forward six years to 2009. Kaufman Sam's fully renovated. We have a lot of high hopes for Coco, Chris, Mike Jacobs. Turns out those two just didn't really pan out very well. But however, one guy who had struggled early in his Royals career, Zach Greinke, finally emerged as one of the top pitchers and ended up winning the Cy Young Awards. Talk about that year for Zach Greinke and uh, – do you think that was like kind of like catapulted the Royals to that those 2014-15 years because of the fact that he had that great season as trade value went up and we ended up getting Kane and Escobar for him? You know, he's an interesting story because obviously he had 
what did he come up in 04? So he had been through a lot, right? Yeah. So he had, he had shot through the system, a high school guy and had showed up and people had very high hopes for him and everything. And then he had some personal struggles. He wasn't sure he wanted to continue to play. And the Royals sort of came around him and the, and we had a GM switch in between there too. So this is one of those early sort of Dayton Moore influence things too, because in that particular time was when Zach was having his, his doubts and his sort of personal issues he was working through and everybody sort of stood by him and, you know, in your own time and, and all that sort of thing and sort of supported him at one point wanted, he was going to get called up to the big leagues when he had come back and he was pitching in Wichita and with a team managed by uh, Frank White. I think Alex Gordon was on that team, I believe. So he was going to get called back up to finish out the year in Kansas city and pitch maybe a little out of the bullpen, get a little taste of the big leagues again. He said he did not want to get called up because that Wichita team was playing for a championship, right? So they were in the hunt. And he said, I'd rather stay here and pitch in these, these meaningful games and try to win this championship here, which they just missed on. So that's interesting to me. Of course, he had that career arc where he, when he first did come back to the Royals, he pitched out of the bullpen for a while. So he pitched differently. And that's back when he could throw 100 miles an hour with ease. His career sort of launches at that point, right? A, a career, as you know, it had started before, but as a starting pitcher and would turn out to be, you know, he's going to turn out to be one of the better starting pitchers in all of Major League Baseball for a, for a segment of time. Decent chance that he might make the National Baseball Hall of Fame. And it sort of all starts right there, right? And, and his starts became sort of events at the ballpark. So that was really one of those pretty compelling thing, right? So when Zach was starting, there was an electricity in the air and, and uh, he was on the cover of Sports Illustrated, which at that time was still a big thing. You know, he was just sort of doing amazing things and just dominating people sort of easily and, and set some records along the way. Uh, you know, he had the, the Royal single game strikeout record for a while until Danny passed him later on so he, he sort of built that up he threw he threw a one hitter in Seattle so he came close to throwing a no hitter and then of course would win the the Cy Young award which was a really cool thing his title Royals history is always going to be fascinating because he did all, all all that is there but then he also wanted to leave too right and in his leaving we were able to make a trade that that was so foundational in the in what would happen in in 14 and 15 because you have Lorenzo Cain and and a couple of the pieces that eventually would be included in the the Wade Davis and James Shields trades Jake Odorizzi was the key one of the key parts that went in that in that deal and he had come to us in the the Grinky deal so there's so much of what Zach did on the field that was interesting and historic in the sense that he won a Cy Young award here. But there's also the things that his career here led to. He still, it's like a single transaction. I always find that this is fun for me because it's like single transactions. So if you go back as single transactions, I believe this is right. You can trade, Zach was a draft pick. So if you follow continuously, everything that would happen from 
from a transaction that would still be with you is we still have a piece of that in the fact that Jackson Kowar is a compensation draft pick, which we received for, I think it was Lorenzo Cain signing with the Brewers. So technically that transaction is still alive and there's still a player here that's, that's being drawn from uh, our, our drafting of Zach Grinke all the way through. So that story's still still out there. Interesting. Yeah, I I I think I think Granky is a Hall of Famer in my opinion. I don't know if they're gonna vote him in, but I I would love to see him uh, get in the Hall of Fame as well. And I remember that one day I remember from that 09 season was the T-shirt Tuesday with the ten Jack Queen King shirt and the Granky with the Sports Illustrated. I don't have that shirt with me anymore. I <laughs> wish I did, but I remember having that shirt at one point and really wearing it. It was a nice shirt too. I really, that was one of my favorite t-shirt Tuesdays. I will claim it because, because I fought for it and believed in it. And, and I thought it was fun is when I was in marketing, Kim Burgess, Kim Hillix at the time, I believe. And I were, were in marketing together and t-shirt Tuesdays was, that's one of our babies which still still exists today. So I will I will take some credit for one of your favorite shirts there and the fact that uh, starting T-shirt Tuesdays, which I'm glad is still still sort of going. So yeah, T-shirt Tuesdays probably my one of my favorite promotional days besides uh, Bobblehead Day. So let's go to those 2014 15 years. Uh, Royals win the pennant both years, get a World Series ring the 2015. So what's your most personal memories from uh, each of those years? And uh, what was your favorite game? Probably. It's hard for it not to be the wild card game, right? Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the wild card game, the wild card game in this way. So usually if you go to the world series and you don't win the world series, then the highlight point, the point that everybody, that most people are going to remember as the, you know, the big moment, is going to revert back to when you won the pennant, right? When you won the American League. And I always say in 14, it's the wild card game is so incandescent still to this point. When we lost to the Giants, the, the memories didn't revert back to the winning the pennant. Most people don't even remember the game we won the pennant. We, it was an afternoon game against the Orioles in which we scored two runs in the first inning. The ball never left the infield. We mm -hmm. scored two runs and made them stand up to be the game four win in that particular one. Most people don't remember much about that game at all, except maybe the, the ending that, that, that we won it. But everything reverts back to the, the wild card game because it was such an incredible experience and such an incredible game with so many highs and lows. <laughs> and so the thing that I remember most about the wild card game is a lot of people said beforehand that oh it's really not a real postseason game if they don't win then it, it it never really happened and i always say that ask the seattle mariners who finished one game behind us that particular year to get that wild card spot if they think that's a postseason game considering how long they've gone since since they played in a postseason game so it was sort of an idea of, it is a postseason game if you remember we took a lead early and then we lost it and then Brandon Moss hits the home run off of Giordano Ventura. And I remember being in the scoreboard control room when that home run was hit. And it was just 
it was sort of one of those blows where you thought, dang, we made it to the postseason and this is all going to be over in two hours and that's going to be that. Then we started the comeback, but we were down those four runs. And I always remember in the eighth inning, we had this rally and we, we got within one run and the tying run was at third base and there was only one out. And then we did not score it. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, gosh, the baseball gods gave us a chance and we didn't get it. And then we have the, the miraculous ninth inning. There's so much about that inning that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Josh Willingham's last hit as a big leaguer, a sort of one of those great professional hitter types that most people don't remember. But that was his last hit, a pinch hit to lead off that inning, a little player that falls into left field. And that sort of started the whole thing rolling. And then, you know, we bump, we give up an out to move Gerard to second base to get in scoring position. And he steals third for the love of God. And he is safe by an eyelash. You're thinking if he gets thrown out at third after we had given up an out to move him into scoring position, if he gets thrown out at third and all of a sudden there's two outs and nobody on, that's going to stink. But everything, everything went for us in that particular thing. And then we had the, the winning run in scoring position and in the 10th and didn't score. We had the winning run and scoring position in the 11th and we didn't score. And then the A's scored in the top of the 12th. And again, you're thinking we had our chance. We had two chances at it and we didn't get it. And then, you know, Lorenzo makes an out to start the bottom of the 12th and we're, you know, two outs. And then Eric Hosmer hits that one that hits off the top of the wall and starts the whole the whole process so everything goes back to the wild card game the wild card game is an indelible experience of the entire thing and if you think of it as a two two chapter story 14 and 15 is like that's the whole thing starts there before the wild card game the friday before the wild card game was our first chance to clinch a playoff spot and it was in chicago and I went to who my boss was here at the time on that Thursday. And I said, I am driving to Chicago. Uh, I've been waiting for this moment forever. Please say I can drive to Chicago. And he said, sure, drive to Chicago. So I drove up to Chicago and we won that night. So that clinched the playoff spot. Technically, we could have still won the division because the Tigers were only one game in front of us. And that went right down in, in Sunday. They were only one game in front of us. And I remember driving home from Chicago that day and I was listening to both the Tiger and the Royals game or hearing updates of the Tiger game and listening to the Royals game and the Tigers game ended before ours did and they had won so it was we couldn't we couldn't tie them and that whole weekend I'm thinking let's tie them let's let's tie them or pass them uh, or certainly tie them and then we would had to play a, a game to decide who was the division champion to try to avoid the the wild card game. And I'm always very thankful that that wish never came true because had, had that happened, maybe that wild card, that wild card game probably doesn't happen. And it certainly doesn't happen the way it did. And that was really the catalyst for the whole thing mm-hmm. after that. And, you know, it wasn't much on the, the Royals. We win the wild card game and it felt like a magic carpet ride because all of a sudden we hadn't played in a playoff game in 29 years. And then all of a sudden we had won eight playoff games in a row and we were playing in the world series. It was a surreal experience. So one of the 14 moments is the wild card game and then winning the pennant was a big thing and then i'll always remember that because we didn't win the world series but it was sort of a 
it was just a feeling in the ballpark. I remember game one of the World Series that year. I'm walking around the ballpark and it doesn't seem real because, you know, I'd been at this ball, the ballpark so often and it was sort of like home. And the idea that the World Series was being played here seemed so foreign to me. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, don't play the World Series here. But Ryan Lefevre said this once and I, I told him, I said, had the same experiences. Like I looked down on the field and it said World Series. So it must be the World Series going. They wouldn't put it there if it wasn't the World Series. So just the idea that we were in the World Series was so special. And then, so 15 is a little bit different because that was, 14 was a magic carpet ride and everything seemed wondrous and magical. 15 was a little bit different because once you got into the playoffs and we had the best record in the American League, it was a little bit more of a white knuckle experience. We, we got to win this thing. We can't lose it two years in a row. And of course, there were a couple of times, especially in Houston on the way, mm-hmm. where you felt like it wasn't going to happen. But then we were fortunate enough in both 14 and 15 that the middle three games, we had home field advantage in the World Series both years. In fact, that we started in, and would have ended the World Series at home and the middle games were on the road, which allowed the club was very kind is like almost everybody in the front office went to the games in San Francisco and New York. So we were fortunate in the sense that it was the middle games, because I don't know that we would have necessarily been able to go twice, but they were the middle games. So we only went once. So in 14, I took one of my, my best childhood friend, the the guy that basically I consider my third brother. So we went to that one. And uh, in 15, my younger brother and I went. So I was actually at City Field when we when we won the World Series. So that 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 whole experience of game five, especially, but games four and five, and being able to to know in the twelfth inning, the the rally in the ninth inning of game five was something that I'll never forget because in in your own mind you were thinking to yourself, okay, we'll go back and get on the plane. Uh, we'll get back to Kansas City about five o'clock in the morning. We have to get ready for game six. So do I go directly to the ballpark and do some things or should I go home and go to sleep beforehand? And then then Lorenzo Cain leads off with a walk and you're thinking, I don't know what will happen. And the game gets tied. And then when Cologne got the hit to put us in front in the 12th, the 14 World Series, we never had this experience in game seven or any of the games before because that was the only clinching game for us was game seven. It was never were three outs away. Well, once Christian Cologne got that hit, we were three outs away. We were three outs away from winning the World Series. So it became really real at that point. But I was, my brother was sitting next to me and it's like, I, you couldn't breathe. And we still had Wade Davis. We hadn't used him yet. And we thought, well, maybe he could give up one run. And I'll never forget when Lorenzo Kane got the hit to drive in the three extra runs and you know we ended up scoring five but I can know I can still see the hit going beyond the shortstop and into into a left center field and that's the moment that we knew it was there was no way that they were going to score four or five runs off Wade Davis Mm -hmm. and so we knew we had won the World Series and that was a very very special moment I just remember jumping up and down and saying it's gonna happen it's gonna happen it's gonna happen so Definitely. Uh, it was one of those surreal moments seeing them not just win the World Series, but even in the World Series and in the postseason, like seeing them. Like, I remember being at the ballpark watching the 05 Royals play, and I'm thinking, like, this team will never 
give us anything. And then like a decade later, they ended up giving us back-to-back pennants and one of the most fun runs you could ever have as a franchise. And and being able to do that as a small market team too is pretty significant in baseball where it's dominated by the larger markets and the being able to win a World Series of small market just brings that more significance as well. You know, we went 29 years without any postseason games, and that's really where the, the connection is made with fans. I know I, it was with me. That's where it really sinks in, and you really become a, a baseball. You just love baseball. And I always remember in 14 and 15 now, it's been too long again, and we need to get back and all that sort of stuff. So, I'm, but it was an embarrassment of riches. It's a, just an embarrassment of riches of moments in the in that 14 and 15 season. We went 29 years without any of them, but we had so many packed into this. It's like you can go back to each, almost every single one of those games, and there's like these magical moments. Nori Aoki making that catch against the wall when he's got his eyes closed, and Gerard Dyson throwing uh, Calgill out at third. And uh, Lorenzo Cain making two shoestring catches that last divisional game here at home uh, against the Angels. Moustakis going into the dugout suite. Alex Gordon slamming into the wall, making a catch against the Orioles. And I mean, you can just there's so many of them that it's 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 preposterous how many moments we got out of those those two postseason appearances. We need to get more, but we got so many of them during the that short run. Yeah, absolutely. Talk about the Royals Baseball Academy and Royals got this. Uh, it's help, it helps them in player development. How innovative was it to bring this program into the, uh, to the organization? You know, it's a really key part of Royals history. It didn't last very long. It was only around for about four or five years. It depends on when, when it exactly ends. Nobody can really designate it. It really happened before the 73 season it sort of happened in 72 but they sort of continued on but anyway but the concept is so original the idea was Mr. Kaufman wanted to be competitive as quickly as possible and how do you build a a team and an organization well the only ways you could do it back then is free agency didn't even exist yet so it was basically through trades and drafting that was the the way you could do it and he was always trying to think of is there any other way we could try to to mine for talent and that's where the baseball academy idea came from it was the idea that you could take great athletes whether baseball was their primary sport or not but if they had these great athletic attributes you could send them to a baseball school and just do intensified baseball instruction and mr k of course was even broader thinking than that because all the guys that would be uh, students at the royals baseball academy would also take classes across the street at manatee community college two things he specifically he wanted them to have a broader education as a whole so he wanted them to take classes on many things but there were two things that he specifically wanted he wanted them to take public speaking and he wanted to take finance classes because he thought that was really important for all of them so they did that and the idea is be this intensified instruction and it worked because it it developed several players, including the most famous being Frank White, at least for us. But by the time any of them reached the big leagues, the, the, the academy had been closed. But the ideas of the academy are still in, exist today, primarily in Latin America. Every team has an academy. We have one in the Dominican. And a lot of the principles 
of the academies that people have, including our own, are, were built off of ideas that came out of the, the Royal Baseball Academy, as does the Urban Youth Academy here in Kansas City has some sort of offshoots of the idea of life lessons through baseball, building a life by using baseball and not, not, necess not necessarily the other way around and, and things like that. It's sort of a contribution that the Royals made to baseball. I always view that as something that the Royals gave to baseball is the idea of the academy. And that's sort of a, it's, it's an ongoing thing. It's like, that's been an important part of baseball, especially the Latin influence of baseball, which was growing even at that time, but has only gotten more, uh, more intense in, uh, in the decades that have passed since then. So I view it as something that the Royals sort of bequeathed to baseball, this idea of intensified instruction and, and trying to build ball players that way. Definitely some interesting stuff right there. Um, can you give me uh, one one fact about Bo Jackson that you know that like many other people, most people wouldn't? His first home run here was technically we still call the longest home run ever hit here by a Royal. Uh, there are a couple that have been measured longer than Bo's uh, 475. The thing that I always point out about Bo is Bo's story in baseball uh, Major League Baseball, professional baseball. This is it's a real scouting story, I always say, because there's a key person that's involved in that entire story. And it was a scout for the Royals by the name of Ken Gonzalez. And Ken Gonzalez was the one that sort of scouted Bo, and it was the guy that eventually signed Bo. And a lot of people look at that and they say, well, how hard would it have been to scout Bo Jackson? I mean, I'll just watch him and is like clearly. But Ken's scouting and and relationship with Bo and his, his mother predates the time where we all knew who Bo was. It goes all the way back into high school before he was a football player at Auburn, before he was a Heisman Trophy winner. Before all of that, Ken had, had scouted him as a high school player, junior high player, really, and kept his eyes on him and uh, would always meet with Bo and his mom throughout all those years to talk about the possibility of playing baseball. And then Bo would, would go on to college and of course become a superstar in football and a Heisman Trophy winner. And everybody assumed he was the number one draft pick by the Buccaneers and everyone assumed that he would just play in the NFL. So at that point, nobody was thinking of him as a baseball player, though he was drafted a couple of times in high school and was drafted as a junior when he was at Auburn. But we didn't draft him when he was a junior at Auburn because Bo had promised his mom that he was gonna to go to college and he was gonna go all four years. So the Royals sort of banked on the idea that we're not gonna pick him in his junior year because he's, he's given every indication that he's going back to Auburn for his, for his senior year, which he did. And then everybody sort of gave up on the idea that Bo would play baseball because he was high some trophy winner first round draft pick why waste a draft pick on him uh he's gonna play football and ken knew because he had had this long-standing relationship with bo and his mom bo's mom had told him you know bo really would like to play baseball and as it turned out he got sort of sideways with the buccaneers too but even before that there was a chance that he was considering doing both and with that long-standing relationship, the Royals took a chance on a fourth round draft pick 
because Art Stewart always used to tell this story on uh, art's gone now, unfortunately. Kenny Gonzalez, unfortunately, passed away as a very young man at like 50 in his early 50s. But he always used to tell the story. It's like we weren't going to use the first round draft pick on him and it's we weren't going to use the second. And then the third round, we started thinking about taking him. And then we started to worry that maybe someone might have gotten some information that maybe he would be interested in doing this too. And so by the fourth round, they decided they would take a flyer and it's like, we're going to, we're going to take him and then surprised everybody by the fact that they signed him. My favorite part about that story is Ken Gonzalez is such a key part of that because had he not had this longstanding relationship and taken all the, all the scouting work for years, long before people even knew who Bo was and building up this relationship and everything, Bo might've never played base, professional baseball at all. And he certainly wouldn't have with the Kansas City Royals. So it really goes to, it's a, it's a real scouting story and, and relationship building story of Ken Gonzalez. I just try to tie it to today. I, this is one of my favorite parts of those linkages. So Ken Gonzalez passed away. He had a heart attack in a hotel room in Wichita just after he had signed Jamie Bluma, a draft pick of ours, and would briefly pitch for us. And as a great guy, one of my favorite alumni. But he had a son named Colin Gonzalez, who was very young when his father passed away. The, a lot of people in the organization took it upon themselves to look after Colin and his siblings after his, his dad died. And after a while, Colin was interested in baseball had various roles inside the, the organization for years, and he still does. He's a scout for us out in, in California now. In a, in a very important part of Royals history in the, in the early, late teens or, or, or the early aughts, I guess you would call them, is he was sort of our cultural assimilation person in surprise. And he helped a lot of the Latin players when they would come and make their first foray in living in the United States and try to help them manage their way through that in, in a world in which the Spanish wasn't the dominant language and all that sort of thing and make them feel comfortable and learn how to, to cope. And so that was a key role that he played in that time. And one of the first players that he worked with in his first move to the United States was a, a very young catcher named Salvador Perez. So Colin Gonzalez was there helping Sal in his when he first came to Surprise and, uh, and helped him sort of manage that first movement into living in the United States and baseball and that. And then, of course, Sal would go on to be, have such a key role in Royals history. And I said, that's such a cool tie that, you know, the Bo Jackson story has a, has a Gonzalez family connection, but so does the Salvador Perez story has a, has a Gonzalez family connection as well. So... That's one of my favorite things about Bo. I remember one story uh, when uh, he was playing, him and Deion Sanders went head to head in 1990. And I was watching, it was Deion's double play, 30 for 30. And Bo Jackson hit like three home runs that day. And then Deion Sanders comes up. He hits one, rips one in the center field. Bo tries to catch it, dives, lands on his shoulder, separates his shoulder. And then Deion Sanders was able to circle around the base, get inside the park home run. And then the funny part was Deion Sanders like, I always tell people, me and Bo, we combined to hit four home runs that day. Here's the, here's the fun thing about that story. So all that's true. Bo hit three home runs in that game. And he injured himself trying to, to catch a Deion Sanders because I think they were trying to outdo each other. And he injures himself. 
and Bo would miss 40 games because of that injury. His first game back after that, 40, 40 games later, was here at home against the Seattle Mariners and Randy Johnson, Hall of Famer, left-handed pitcher. And in Bo's first at bat, coming back, he hit a home run. So Bo actually hit a home run in four consecutive at-bats with the third and fourth being 40, more than 40 days apart uh, while he was nursing his short, sore shoulder that he, that he injured trying to catch a Deion Sanders sinking line drive. That's amazing. So the numbers, uh, Dick Hauser, Frank White, and George Brett are retired. Do, do, you, do you think, will Salvador Perez sometime future when he retires, do you think his, will his number be up there? Do you believe? I think he's got a good case for it. It's one of those interesting things is, so the Royals Hall of Fame voting, at least for players, it's an eligibility system. So you're not nominated to be in the Royals Hall of Fame. It's an eligibility system. If you play a certain number of years with a certain number of innings pitched or plate appearances, you will appear on the ballot. And then it's up to the voters to decide, right? So we don't make a decision on who, who you can vote for other than these basic eligibility criteria. And then it's completely up to the voters. Whereas number retirements is a completely, it's what I call an organizational decision. There's no pre-described, some, some clubs will only retire the number of somebody who is enshrined in Cooperstown. That's just a policy that they might have. I don't, most clubs don't have that, but some clubs do. We don't, our policy is only that it's an organizational decision. And it's, you know, it's made after the, after someone's career in which they would be considered for that is completed and to decide what the, if there would be one. And so we're very, it's been very selective, right? There's only, there's only three of them. There's a couple of people that probably have a, a unique case for it. And, uh, and Sal is certainly, is certainly one of them. And we don't even know what the end of his story is going to be, but all the, all the stuff that we know so far is already so compelling that it's certainly, I mean, he's easily a Royals hall of famer. That will, t- that will be a 100% vote. But when we, when we get to that day, what that'll, what that'll look like, I think there's a, I think there's a decent chance that the, that 13 w- is definitely one that nobody else might have a chance to wear. Mm-hmm. I think he might be, he might be the last one to wear that one, but that's a decision to be made in the future, but it's certainly a case to be made. Yeah, absolutely. They've out world series MVP, multiple time gold glover, multiple time all-star had the most home runs by a catcher in MLB history in a single season. I mean, he's definitely made a case for that. And I think he'll, I believe too, as well, he'll be, uh, him and George Brett will be uh, in Cooperstown someday together. And uh, I know we're going way long. I'm going to tell you one of my favorite Salvador Perez stories. This is a personal story. There's so many of his, his public story. So first time I met Salvador Perez, he won't remember this, I guarantee, but I do, is First time I ever really heard of him was right outside of my office here because we they had some organizational meetings. This would have probably been back in 2009, 2009, probably. It was probably 2009. And I heard them talking about this catcher. So it's the first time I'd really heard people talk a lot about him. I'd heard about him, but I, 
they talked a lot and they were talking in glowing terms about him. So I knew he was someone to keep an eye on. The next year, the next January, we were having Royals Fan Fest and Royals Fan Fest at that time was at the Overland Park Convention Center, which was a much smaller place than Bartle Hall where we had it in, in latter years. But we also combined it with an award ceremony, which was more of an internal thing where we'd give out the pitcher and player of the year awards for all of our minor league teams. And we would, they would bring those guys to that particular event. And we had sort of a dinner for them. And I remember we were in the, the, the Sheridan hotel there in, 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 in Overland park and uh, Betty Cagle, who was one of uh, one of the people here that helps with uh, players, wives and families, especially the uh, players of Latin descent. So we, they were, we were outside in a reception in that sort of bar area. And she comes up to me with sort of worried look on her face. And she goes, Kurt, 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 can you tie a tie? And I was like, yeah, I can tie a tie. She goes, come with me, come with me. So she takes me in there. And so in the back of the room, there's all these fresh faced young players or whatever. And she goes, he doesn't know how to tie a tie. Can you tie the tie for him? And so I... I tried to tie the tie on him, right? But it's backwards, so I can't do it right. So I just took the tie off of him and I put it around me and I tied it up and I tied it and I didn't tighten it all the way up. And then I put it over his head and I tightened it up. And I said, there you go, you're ready to go. And that was Salvador Perez. And so <laughs> my first interaction with Salvador Perez was tying his tie for him before he received a minor league player of the year award. That's unbelievable. So, that's a really great story great story and I think a lot of Royals fans will appreciate hearing that story and uh, before uh, we let you go uh, we want to thank you very much Kurt for spending time to uh, talk to us and share to uh, Royals fans out there a lot of history and about the franchise and also about the game in general uh, what where, uh, where can we find you on, on online and uh, how can we uh, continue to support you you can go to uh, royals.com. There's also royalshalloffame.com. Those are both out there and you can find you can find me. Royals email addresses are easy. It's firstname.lastname at royals.com. So you can find me there. So that's probably the best way. And if you're at the ballpark, please come by when, uh, when the season rolls around. Hopefully we will start at the, at the end of March. We don't play a home game until the beginning of April, but looking forward to this season. So anybody that's, uh, that has, has not been to the ballpark or has not been to the Royals Hall of Fame in a while, please stop by and say hello and check out some new things. Hopefully I was talking about the, those videos earlier. Hopefully we'll have the, the theater open, knock on wood. And uh, it, should be, it should be a good year. I have, and just like every other Royals fan, I have high hopes and really a, a high level excitement for a lot of these young guys and, and really excited to see what they're going to do. Some of the stuff, it, it's different, but so you can see some of the same things. It's like winning championships along the way, that whole group with Hosmer and, and Kane and Moustakis and a couple other guys that were sort of won championships together at A ball and double A and triple A as they were coming along. And some of these guys have done the same. And uh, I'm anxious to, for them to arrive in Kansas city and, and hopefully put us back into the postseason and 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 we'll take our chance from there hope springs eternal every every spring and uh, i think there's a lot to look forward to this year and in the in the years to come yeah thank you so much kurt uh we appreciate the time 
and we wish you luck for hopefully a successful season and hopefully the season happens this uh, in 2022, but we hope you much success and hope you, you enjoy another year at the hall of fame. Well, I thank you guys for having me and it was great having you guys here probably been a couple of months ago now when you guys uh, were here for that, that day at the, at the case. So that was fun as well. We love doing that. So it's good seeing you and, and thanks for having me. Calling me down, 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 down. My foolish heart turns out to be all that I am is all that you see. For those who are listening to our show for the first time, all our past and future episodes are available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Also, make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at the Sports Mecca.